Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Right. Hello, everyone. We're here today with Rick. Thanks so much for being able to join us this afternoon. I'll just turn it over to you right away. Why don't you just give us a little background about how you found yourself at Pride Stores? All right. Well, um, in order for me to get to Pride Store, which was actually the first time I stepped in Pride Stores was like 20 some odd years ago. Um, and um, uh, prior to that, I guess I'm just going to do a little background, um, history background in my life. Um, early on, uh, uh, my um, family, my mother and my father, um, and when I was two years old, my father divorced my mother and uh, for reasons why I still don't know why. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, um, and soon after that, um, my dad put me in an orphanage for some uh, short period of time, three or four years. Uh, my dad grew up in the orphanage. Um, he knew uh, the caretakers there at the orphanage who had taken a liking to him all his time there. And um, I guess one of the benefits of him going through the orphanage when he needed somebody to watch me, uh, he was able to put me in the orphanage for some time being. And um, I just learned recently, which I did not know this for most of my life, that it was the caretakers that prompted him to um, bring me there because they said, we'll, we'll watch after him. But his rules were that I could not sleep there at night. I had to sleep within the orphanage. So three years old, my dad's dropping me off. That was my first memory ever of my dad and i just remember the the trauma um the just me screaming bloody murder hanging on to his leg and just didn't understand what was going on and i have since learned through my healing and therapy and all that kind of stuff that um things like that when i lost my mother and i lost my father although he came back and got me there was this um, belief that I had, um, and it's often um, when younger children lose parents, they, 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 they think it's their fault. And so I kind of, that kind of set the stage for me for a long time that, you know, I must have done something wrong. I even up until my mid 20s would tell people that my mother left my dad because of me. Mm. And I didn't understand the whole story. and. Um, he didn't he didn't really tell me much about it so there was a lot of assumptions made and a lot of um, me feeling less than yeah that really set a pattern in my life that's a really big burden to carry yeah yeah Um, about four years later dad came back to get me Um, he had remarried she had a son by a previous marriage so we became this little foursome Um, And it wasn't long after that. I just remember a lot of, like, a lot of punishments, a Mm -hmm. lot of um, 
pants down, belt whipping kind of uh-huh. punishments and, and things going on in that. And I, I, you know, there's just a lot of like this um, foggy memory of how that all started and how that all became to be. But um, the point I'm trying to make is, is that that kept reinforcing what I felt about myself and yeah. believed about myself. That there was something inherently wrong with me. I am obviously flawed. And that just kind of started a whole pattern um, of that feeling about myself and not ever measuring up. So, you know, um, let's like, like go ahead several years and um, 15, 16, um, and I'm uh, starting to realize that I like boys <laughs> a little bit more than I like girls. And actually that had been going on quite a while. I just didn't know what to do about that or, or understand that there was, you know, where that was going. So, I don't know, I just remember when I was 16 years old, I had been seeing this boy and he had written me this letter and my mother, snooping around, found it, brought it to the table, literally to the kitchen table. And, you know, um, long story short, it got to, you know, do you want to be this way? Kind of, you know, this is, you know what the Bible says and all of that that many of us have heard. And um, so uh, they, that prompted her to send me to a therapist of some sort, or I think the psychiatrist or therapist. And I just remember that session with him, um, him saying, you know, Rick, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, let's get your folks in here and let's talk about this. And, you know, well, they never went, never discussed. Things went on as they went on. And, you know, um, I never really came to terms with that. I, I, you know, I was like hanging out with boys and that kind of stuff for a while. And um, I just remember going off to college and my dad saying to me, driving down the road, he was like, so did all that stuff taken care of and I was like yeah dad's fine you know I didn't want to talk about it my parents were very um, entrenched in charismatic Baptist church one week church of Christ the next week the evangelical fundamental Christian church the next week and I never fit and never belonged you know it's the way I felt so um, you know wasn't long started going out to bars and getting more, you know, becoming more, um, like, open about, you know, my sexuality and such, but still always believing that there was something wrong. I was wrong, um, you know, and just that whole history I gave, as, as that, you know, it just kind of followed me in my entire life. Even when I was, like, involved people in groups, um, you know, I always felt different and and just not a part of, and um, that followed me for a very long time. So I uh, left college early, um, and in 1986, I was in Florida and found out that I was HIV positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, When, you know, I had a cold for a while and it didn't go away, and this was brand new, and doctors were, you know, they did some tests, and nothing came up and he said, you know, there's this thing going around and do you think you might qualify, I guess, to something to that effect, you know, and I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's check that out. So 
I found out. And that was really devastating to me. Yeah. I mean, that's, and at that time, there was just so little information out there and so little about it. So it was like the death disease. Absolutely. It was a death sentence. And I couldn't speak about it to anyone. The way the hysteria was and all the information coming out through the press, media, and, and I was like just lost and alone. And, um, you know, I, I should, you know, interject here that my using at this time really spiked. Uh, I remember the day I found out, I went out and bought like a case of beer and went through it in a couple of hours and just didn't know where to go. And, you know, things never really got much better, I mm-hmm. guess, you know. It was about a year or two later and, um, you know, I decided that I needed to go back home because I needed to go home and die. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought was going to happen. And, um, you know, as hard as it was for my parents to accept what I had come home with, um, they at least allowed me to stay there. And that was things all that great there. No, I would never go back and do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Live with mom and dad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, no, I'm just yeah, at 30 years old or mm-hmm. something, or 28, whatever I was, you know. But um, so, you know, all this time, um, like, at that point in my life, I, I just, like, did not invest in my life anymore. I didn't, I didn't have any desire to finish school, um, a career path, and just kind of, you know, was lost and didn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, um, all throughout that period, I definitely, like, drank and, um, you know, I didn't have much of a life that, you know, to speak of. And then... I don't know, it was probably about, um, let's see, it was in 93 that I moved to Minneapolis. A friend lived here. I came to visit. I decided I had to be here. This was a much better place than where I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at that time that um, the cocktails for um, HIV medications were starting to come out. And so there, I might have had a, you know, um, a chance and things did start to turn around for me and um you know life while using at this time you know i i drank um i still wasn't out and about like with my sexuality mm-hmm. i had a girl on one arm and something else going on in the background you know so i wasn't real clear about where i was and um, when I started, though, uh, there was a point when I would get really drunk and I would go to the bars, the, the gay bars here. Um, and then that was like really scary for me. And um, that just kind of brought on a lot of things. So, you know. Um, Can you expand on why that's scary? Because that's something that's super common. Yeah. Is because well, I think gay bars are supposed to be this safe space mecca for people, especially back in the 80s, 90s, what have you. Yeah. And yet, even though it's a quote-unquote safe space, there's still so much anxiety about being there because it's like, wait, I'm not publicly out yet or I don't want that. So I wonder what you think about that. Well, there was this internalized homophobia, I think, that was going on in my own life, you know? And um, also there was this fear of the rejection. Now think about my history, about the abandonment Mm -hmm. that I felt and, and not feeling good enough and... And, you know, 
sorry, in gay bars, that happens. Yep. You know, you can't be something for everyone. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that only like increased my anxiety and I wanted to belong and fit in, but I didn't feel like I did. I didn't quite understand the whole gay scene here. Right. And yeah. So. Well, it's especially hard because it's not like in this time you could just go up to someone like on the street and say, hey, like, I think you're attractive. Could <laughs> maybe we can get coffee sometime. Like you run the risk of getting physically hurt by yeah. doing something like that. So right. and then to also feel that way in this quote unquote safe space is hard. Right. And I, I was living a dual life. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a straight straight life. I was working in corporate America and lived that life for a while. And then, you know. Friday nights, I'd get really drunk and drive around the gay 90s, mm-hmm. scared to death to go in, you know, and yeah. then I found the saloon, and I remember that, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it wasn't long after that, um, this boy was attracted to me, and we started hanging out, and one thing led to another, and I remember I was, like, drinking throughout this period of my life, and I would, I smoked pot for a little bit, and then, you know, I tried this, and I tried that, and I tried this, and, but, you know, I kind of, like, even though I had no real direction in, 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 in certain aspects of my life, I kind of, like, maintained at that level, and then this was about the time I, when the like designer drugs, the party scene here was really starting to kick into gear mm-hmm. and I found myself in it. Um, I, you know, first of all, I started to feel like I belonged. I cared about my, I was getting healthier I went and worked out a lot. I was hanging out with uh, a list, gay list, whatever that <laughs> yeah. it was, you know, yeah, you know, I was going around with, I had this new boyfriend and I was meeting all these new guys and I was really excited and there was ecstasy and, you know, these designer drugs going on and circuit parties and mm-hmm. just a part of all of this, you know, and, um, there was one drug though I didn't have any interest in and that was meth. Mm-hmm. I was just like, are you kidding me? You stay up for three or four days. I mean, that's crazy. That's just crazy yeah. to me that, you know, it's just, but, you know, still, it was like I belonged, just felt great, you know, and at first. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, I guess it's like uh, the Wizard of pulling back the curtain. You know, I started to see an ugly side of this and a very superficial side. And, and then things weren't really going great with this guy I met. And he had a double life going on that I wasn't aware of. And then I thought one day I said, I'm just going to try this meth, you know. That was that. Uh, that started um, me on a road that I never thought I'd ever go. Um, and so when meth entered my world, it wasn't long. I was doing meth for about um, a year or so, and I was just um, not doing well mentally. Um, this relationship that I was in was not good, and I felt like that. I need to do whatever I had to do to hold on to the relationship. And for him, that meant we did three ways. And, you know, that mm-hmm. there was not this, like, monogamous situation. Right. And this was not good with me. And But I went along with it because I was afraid to lose what I had. Yeah, because it was the one thing from your story that I'm hearing that seemed stable for you. And it was like this first time of stability. Absolutely. And so internally it makes sense why you would feel like you had to sacrifice like your own personal belief system for that yeah 
And when I found out what he was doing on the side, mm -hmm. I was devastated, but, you know, I tried to hang in there. And so that, like, codependence, um, that unhealthy relationship and doing meth on top of it and, and not doing well mentally and, and job, I mean, just that, just things just started to go down really fast for me. So, um, I had been working with a therapist. I'd gone in to talk to him about the relationship and he did like a, uh, like, a, I guess a drug screen or a drug, like, kind of like, tell me about what kind of drugs you're using, how often. Evaluation. Yeah, that type of thing. And he was the first person that I ever heard say that, you know what, you might have a chemical dependency problem. I was like, are you kidding? Everyone's doing that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, took me a long time to accept that. But um, this this paranoia and this, this fear that I had, you know, when I was using meth and, and people were getting rested and I just saw a lot of bad stuff happening and I was getting scared and fearful and at one point you know I was bringing this back to the therapist and at one point he was just like you know we talked about this and it was there was always this conversation about going to get help and I had looked at pride in the lavender magazine I had seen I was aware of pride and talked about it thought about it but then it just got to a point and it got too much for me and I said all right I'm done Yep, I'm ready. And as bad as I, I did not want to go, I was kicking and screaming all the way, crying, did not want to be ripped apart from this unhealthy relationship I was in. And um, it found myself in the doors of pride. Mm -hmm. And that was some 20 something years ago. Wow. Um, I will jump ahead, went through uh, like three months uh, and at that time, they had an extended program where you could stay for another three months, which I decided to do. And um, uh, I was uh, left and I was able to stay sober for 10 years. I had entered into a new relationship after one year. This guy was great. After one year of sobriety? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. One year of sobriety. And wonderful guy everyone was like wow rick you really you know and, all, and it was just you know i was like and i just remember him saying at one point he was like i wasn't so like excited to get involved in any relationship mm -hmm. but at the same time he was like you know i can't wait forever and you might as well move in here and so i kind of went with it and i'm just gonna kind of skip ahead so yeah things were great for a year or so um but you know I may have been sober, but what I had not done was take care of my mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and even though this guy is a great guy, he still is, um, I went into this relationship on a very like codependent kind of um, platform, if you will. Yeah. And there was some codependence on his side as well. And, you know, I stayed sober for 10 years coming out of pride. But the point I want to make is that I did not take care of my mental health. I stopped um, any uh, therapy. I wasn't involved in a um, any kind of support group for you know AA or anything like that. Just stopped it all, and it all became him. My life became him. Mm -hmm. And um, ten years later, when I wasn't doing so well, severe depression. Um, he was struck, you know, and I, I had 
I had worked some and then I stopped and, you know, it was like depending on him and he just got to a point where he's like, I, I can't do this anymore. And if I thought that the depression didn't have any bearing on what happened in the end, you know, it was very much a part of that. And um, he's like, you got to go. Well, I lived with him for a year under that, like we're broken up, but, yeah. you know, and that was just hell on me. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't long. I found myself out hooking up. There was a dealer and then meth came back in and this went on for like seven years mm -hmm. back and forth. I went back to pride for a month. I didn't last very long, got out went to another program, went to another program and um, was really having a hard time. And it was really like this. So I want to connect this to my early beginnings, this relationship, this man is a great man. Um, and you no, know, there was some codependence going on between both of us, but him saying, you got to go just made this feeling of low self-worth and I just don't measure, I never could measure up to his expectations. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was just like, so when some people can get out of a relationship and, um, you know, maybe in a year or so they're, they're over it. It took me six years, right? you know, because I couldn't, and I wasn't doing anything to like, I wasn't seeing there. I wasn't going to therapy. I was not connected to any kind of su support group or anything. And so, you know, it was, I was finding solace with people who used, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, that only lasts so long, you know? Oh, and I'm so, what you're saying, I think is so common. There's a really famous author, Graham Greene, who, um, said, basically, we spend the first 20 years of our life living and the rest of our life reflecting on those first 20 years. And it seems like with your story, it was just that from the very beginnings, that, that sense of abandonment and that sense of lack of stability, if you will. Yes. And then always kind of trying to find that thing to fill that. Um, and I love that you tied in substance use with mental health because nobody just has a substance use problem. Right. It's always linked in something deeper. Absolutely. And so it's hard in this field because we don't know answers to certain things. But when you hear a story like yours, it very much sounds like one plus one is two. And so it, like your story just seems to make sense. Absolutely. You're right. I mean, yes, drugs to fill that emptiness, people to fill that emptiness, shopping, whatever it was, you know, and um, that that is one thing I wanted to to really point out is that until I could get my mental health together and figure out what was going on and learn to like myself and, you know, um, not needing someone or something to fill this emptiness and this void inside, mm -hmm. you know, until I got control of all of that, I couldn't, that I had no chance of survival and sobriety, just didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, it's been four years now that I've been in this recovery journey. This time, though, with, you know, I early on, I recognized right away. I was like, I, what have you not been doing? And, you know, I had some people in my life that were able to say, you can have a different life. You can have a better life, even now, you know. Um, and um, 
you know, I just I decided that I was going to have to do everything different because everything I had been doing kept leading me to the same place. And, you know, it just started with very simple things and, and people that believed in me and supported me and me investing into my life and um, wanting something different and working for it. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, my fourth treatment later, four years ago, I was like that, you know, after the third one, I was like, I am never going back to treatment again. I was out there using and I said, mm-hmm. you know, treatment's for quitters. Yeah. You know, I made a joke out of it. I was like, yeah. what is treatment going to do for me this time? And fast forward a couple of years, I lost my housing again. I lost my job. I had no money. I had no desire or will. And then I started to lose my mind again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I found myself in treatment again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, you know, I was like, there was this kind of like dual thing, like, I don't want to ever go through this again. So mm-hmm. what am I going to have to do mm-hmm. to make sure this never happens again? So what do you do? What do you do now to make sure that you don't go back to where you work? Where Absolutely. You well, well, I, you know, immediately it was like, I need to stay connected to a sober community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had uh, the director of behavioral health in this, this group that I was with, it's like, you need to find a sober gay community. That's my fear is that, you know, you've been kind of defaulting back to a using community. And, you know, you need to get yourself surrounded by people in the gay community that are sober and, you know, can be supportive. And, you know, and not everyone in my life is sober, but not everyone had the issues that I had, and mm-hmm. so, you know. So I'm, you know, I'm definitely very much present in that community. Um, uh, I um, decided that uh, I wanted to give back to the recovery community and um, I uh, became certified as a peer recovery specialist. Um, so I work with people in recovery or desiring to be in recovery and whatever that looks like for each individual. Um, because my own story was like, until I had a life that I wanted, there was, you know, not going to be any desire to stay in that, to stay sober if I didn't have something to get up for in the morning, desire, you know, to, mm-hmm. uh, not yeah, yeah, some, some purpose and, you know, whatever. So, um, so, you know, I'm supporting others in recovery. I'm surrounded by people in recovery, but mainly my mental health. Um, you know, I worked very hard on that. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I just, you know, there was, there was a point in this last treatment that I got this understanding of loneliness and isolation, the difference between that and solitude. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know, I just like suddenly got it. It's like, I'm okay with myself. I don't need to have someone in my life or something in my life to, to fill in some kind of void. I have built a life that I want. And you know, when I look at it now compared to 50 years prior, I don't want to ever turn back. There's no desire to do to go into that, you know, but I've done a lot of work to get there. Mm-hmm. So. That's so beautiful to say I am enough is sometimes enough. Absolutely. And honestly, I think as a culture, we need to redefine what we think of quitters. Because <laughs> when we think quitters, we think, oh, they're lazy. They can't do this. They can't do that. But it sounds an awful like you chose your life over someone and something else's. And I think that's amazing. Absolutely. And I'm just so glad that we had you here today and just want to thank you for, for speaking with us and our thank listeners. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.